see the Zendo full and to see all of you out there in Zoom land. Um, I haven't been in the Zendo for several days so as many of you know uh, Lori uh, came back from France uh, with COVID and so uh, we've been very carefully we've been masked and socially distanced and in our house and eating separately and sleeping separately uh, and uh, I tested this morning and was negative um, so I felt it was okay to come here today um, and I feel I have to collect myself. I feel sort of out of it. It's interesting. I mean, having, I'm not ill, but having Lori in the household, uh, mostly, you know, staying close to the bed is uh, somehow like I absorb that energy. And uh, so it was like, felt peculiar to come down and come into the Zendo here this morning, but uh, I wanted to talk with you and uh, just also to say in advance, uh, upcoming we have Sashin that begins on Wednesday, it's a five-day Sashin from roughly 7.40 in the morning until 5.30 in the evening, I believe. And uh, while we may be fully subscribed in terms of in-person uh, registration, uh, you can look at the website if you want to participate online, that's possible. And also all of the Dharma talks, there'll be Dharma talk each day at this time. At, um, at 10.15 and uh, I'll be giving most of the talks she's so Sue Osher will be giving a talk and so invite you to attend those if you can also on Monday morning we have what's called a Shosan ceremony which is basically uh, a Dharma inquiry ceremony where uh, students come and they ask uh, they'll ask the abbot a question uh, a practice question something from your life and heart 
and uh, I will do my best to respond to you as you, not you as uh, from the standpoint of making some doctrinal comment, but try to speak to where I hear the question coming from. And it's, it's a beautiful ceremony, uh, very intimate, and it's going to be uh, online, uh, not in person. Uh, and that'll be on Monday morning at, <clears throat> at 7.30. Uh, and so you can uh, go to the uh, online Zendo and uh, you can participate there. And please uh, think about, if you're going to come, please think about a question you might like to ask. Uh, and uh, I look forward to that exchange with you. So do you have any questions about that before I come on? Yes. Uh, what kind of ceremony will there be online? That's a very interesting question. I think what we'll do is, I will be in here. Okay. And uh, there'll be Ajisha, uh, who will do the ceremonial aspect, which is basically just inviting me to ask a question. But other than that, I think just be Ajisha and uh, um, someone to ring the bells and so on. I think that's it. Does, who's the director for this? Anna. Anna, okay. Um, anyway, that's as best I know. Any other, other questions? Yeah, Sue. Just to clarify that people are welcome to attend your talks during yes. day online. Right, online. Thank you. Yeah, we're, we're pretty fully subscribed, I think, for uh, for the places in the Zendo. And as you know, we've been trying to limit our participation, our presence in the Zendo to uh, 33 people. Uh, and uh, gone are the days when we would cram as many people in here as we could. In days of some Saturdays, it'd be 70 or 80 people. I think maybe those days are past, but altogether here right now, between you all and and those that we have online, we have about there's about 75 people attending this talk. And I think over the course of the pandemic, we've figured out uh, pretty gracefully how to have uh, participation in both modalities. And, in person and also online in a hybrid format. Are there any other questions about Shosan? Yeah. Is uh, Shosan available to everyone, uh, those not participating in practice period? Yes. Yes, Shosan is open to everyone who shows up. There's another hand someplace? Well, maybe not. Okay, so my talk today, uh, I was, we've been, we've been speaking from, and teaching from, I've been teaching from uh, Zen My Beginner's Mind, and from Suzuki Roshi, and uh, I'm going to continue to talk, whether from Zen My Beginner's Mind or from more, more broadly from Suzuki Roshi, 
uh, in the course of uh, this next week. Um, and today, I want to read to you from a piece that's in uh, our late teacher Sojin Roshi's uh, forthcoming book. Uh, as I've said, uh, there's a book of Sojin Roshi's uh, teachings of his teachings and also a part, a part memoir that is coming out from Counterpoint Press in the fall. And uh, this was a, there's a, a piece in the book that's, that Sojin Roshi wrote, uh, which is just uh, a list, he calls it Suzuki Roshi's Key Subjects. So I thought I would read to you and comment from that, and uh, also there'll be time for discussion. So the first of these key subjects, uh, and these, these are very brief, uh, brief points that Sojin makes. Uh, the first key subject of Suzuki Roshi is that everything changes. Sojin writes, according to his understanding, this is the most fundamental, indisputable principle of Buddha Dharma. All the rest could be considered a commentary on this truth. And that makes sense to me. I've, I've often talked in a traditional uh, exposition of the Dharma, the Buddha spoke of three Dharma seals. Uh, so uh, impermanence, which is the fact that everything changes, non-self, which is the, in a certain way the manifestation of everything changing, and then the third Dharma seal that uh, that the Buddha mentions is dukkha, suffering, or that that everything is unsatisfactory. Uh, and in the Mahayana tradition, in a number of key places, uh, the third Dharma seal is changed. Uh, it's instead of being uh, impermanence, non-self, and dukkha or suffering, it's impermanence, non-self, and nirvana, which points out to me that uh, whether you are suffering, whether you are in heaven or hell, is really dependent upon your attitude towards the fact that everything changes. If we can accept this, then we have some freedom. If uh, impermanence seems like a bad idea, uh, uh, then we're going to suffer. And, you know, really all of us in, at one moment or another think this impermanence is a bad idea. Uh, and yet, we come in the, in the course of practice uh, to actualize this, to actualize impermanence. Uh, so everything changes. Uh, Suzuki Roshi spoke about this another way. Uh, 
He said, the secret of Soto Zen is just two words, not always so. In Japanese, it's two words, he says. Three words in English. But that is the secret of our practice. Not always so. So not always so is impermanence. You know, sometimes we want things to be always so, the good things, and sometimes we can't wait for things to be not always so, the things that we want to get rid of. Uh, but to be in the flow of everything changing is to be aligned with reality. And that's at the heart of Suzuki Roshi's teaching. That's at the heart of, uh, of our practice and the heart of Zazen. We sit here and we maintain a, a posture, and we face the wall, and we sort of create a set of restrictions and forms for ourselves. Uh, and as I spoke of last week, we have uh, a formal posture in an informal mind, or uh, a mind, a formless mind. So, while we're sitting, facing the wall, anything can happen in our minds. Actually, anything can happen in our world at any moment. And to, to sit there and face it is to come to terms uh, and acceptance of the fact that everything changes. So that's the first point that Sojourn makes. Uh, the second point that he makes is uh, Suzuki Roshi's teaching of beginner's mind. And Sojourn writes, this became a kind of trademark for him, which was used in the title of his first book, of the first book of his talks, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. I see it as another way of expressing the meaning of shikantaza. So, shikantaza is his next point, so I'm not sure whether I should talk about it now or then, but uh, maybe I need to fold that in also. Uh, so this is the third point, and I'm going to come back and say more about beginner's mind. But, the th but I can't talk about it without talking about shikantaza. So, Sojourn writes, Shikantaza. This is the term that Dogen used. Dogen is our 13th century, sort of the source of our 13th century Japanese Soto tradition. That's him right up there, not, not Joe. Uh, the guy behind him on the wall in the print. Actually, Joe is Dogen also. Uh, you should know that and about him. Uh, but that's, that's uh, Dogen Zenji, uh, portrait of him. Uh, so Sochin writes, this is the term that Dogen used, which means, which basically means just sitting, doing. It applies to daily life as well as to zaza. It means to let go and arise new on each moment, or to die and be born 
in each moment. So this is, um, if we had to point to a particular practice that we do or that we've learned and that's been cast to us by Suzuki Roshi and Sojin Roshi, uh, it's this practice of Shikantasa. And so Shikan means uh, to be solely concerned about or solely concerned with. And Taza means sitting. So that is the, the form that we create that I mentioned a few moments ago. And within that form, the practice of Shikantaza is, it takes no particular form. The way I think about it is, uh, could describe it as open awareness or receptivity. So that is distinct from, there, there really are a number of, there are many different meditational techniques as probably many of you have experienced. Uh, and they roughly, to my mind, fall into uh, two camps. Uh, one camp is uh, meditation practices which are essentially concentration practices where you're, uh, you have an object of your meditation, whether it's a physical object or it's a visualization or it's a phrase, you concentrate very, so, very solely and very singly on this, which brings your mind to a kind of one-pointedness. Uh, and that's, that's a very common uh, meditational approach. The other, again, and I'm speaking broadly, the other approach would be uh, open awareness, which is what I think of as concentrate on everything, have a, have a wide open mind of receptivity. And that is my understanding of Shikantaza, that is what we spoke of last week, uh, or in the, yeah, I think it was in the class, have a, having a, um, a formal posture, not a rigid posture, a formal posture, sitting cross-legged or sitting upright, and having your hands in a mudra and aligning your body, and within that to have this open mind, that is in which all of the senses are receptive. So as we're sitting here, if we open our ears, we hear, we can hear the hum of the uh, air purifiers. We can hear birds outside or a car passing or a dog barking. Um, we can see patterns of light flickering in front of our eyes. So all of this is the senses being receptive. 
We're not listening. We're not looking. We're just allowing what comes in through the senses, and that includes uh, the sense of your mind. So that is uh, how I think about shikantaza, how I feel like we've been taught. And that's what, it's sort of what the activity is that we do in zaza. Now to go back a step, um, to beginner's mind. Sojourn writes, this has become a kind of trademark term for him, for Suzuki Roshi, which was used in the title of the first book of his talks, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. I see it as another way of expressing the meaning of Shikantaza. And beginner's mind in Japanese is Soshin. Uh, and this was also a principle that was uh, discussed by Dogen Zenji. And it refers to this attitude of openness. So it refers to this, this shikantaza, which is why Sojin says, uh, beginner's mind is uh, a, way of, a way of expressing the meaning of shikantaza, or the way of expressing the practice of shikantaza. So famously, Suzuki Roshi said, uh, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. And so in the beginner's mind, you, you, could also, you could also express that as not knowing. So when you have an experience, if you can just explore that experience before you put a name on it, before you categorize it and put it in a box and file it where you think in experience you should be filing it. Explore it further with the spirit of curiosity. And if you can manifest beginner's mind, then uh, more possibilities arise than if you just immediately put it in a box. Uh, so beginner's mind is also so it's synonymous with Shikantaza, and it's really at the heart of our practice. The next principle that uh, Sojin points out is uh, what he calls no gaining mind. He writes, our practice is to resume our original true nature, fundamentally there is nothing to gain or lose. That which is gained is also lost, and therefore is not fundamental. Our practice is to let go and trust our Buddha nature. So this no gaining mind, which Suzuki Roshi spoke of all the time, and Sojin Roshi spoke of all the time, uh, there's a of course, a, a word for it in Japanese that appears again and again, particularly in the in the Soto 
Zen tradition, uh, and that is uh, Musho Toku, which is great. I don't know if there's something great sounding about that. Musho Toku, so, uh, somehow, in no getting mind, everything is mushed together. Um, but this is also a challenge to some of the ideas that we may have about Buddhism. Uh, you know, if you read the early uh, Buddhist texts, and even through many of the Zen texts, uh, it feels like there's an aim. The aim is that your aim towards enlightenment, and that that's that's the goal. That enlightenment or nirvana is a way to be free from suffering, which sounds pretty good. With particularly with the elucidation of Zen that comes from, from Dogen Zenji. Uh, Dogen Zenji, as he often did, uh, he would use words to turn things on, on their heads. So he had a principle that he taught over and over again, uh, which he called practice realization or practice enlightenment, which means, you know, usually when we come to Zen, there's a part, there's at least a part of our brain that, you know, is aware of our suffering and wants to get rid of it, wants to gain this release, if you will. And that's natural. What Dogen does by flipping things on his head is to say, um, it's our, it's our already enlightened nature that brings us to practice. And that the practice is not to gain enlightenment because you can't gain something that you already have. The practice of Zen or the practice of Buddhism is to express our enlightenment. And so our, our Zazen practice uh, is a manifestation of our enlightenment. And this is very important because this uh, gaining mind is, is so pervasive, it's so slippery, and we're so conditioned to experience it. Uh, and this practice is, the practice is, a, is an antidote to that. Uh, but sometimes, admittedly, sometimes it takes a long time for that remedy to take hold in us. But please be patient. And uh, if you have a gaining idea, okay. Notice it's a gaining idea and just set it aside. Whether that's a gaining idea in your zazen practice or a gaining idea in your life, 
Uh, but it's not that there isn't something to realize or accomplish. Uh, one of our contemporary teachers, Koto Sawaki Roshi, wrote, uh, Zazen is good for nothing. And then he says, unless you fully understand that, it really is good for nothing. <laughs> so, so there's a conundrum based, in, you know, embedded in that, right? Uh, I think one of the main things that I get from this instruction towards no gaining mind is uh, just do your best to enjoy your life, to appreciate your life. Uh, rather than thinking about gaining something, appreciate what's already there for you. And this, this deep appreciation is also, I think, at the heart of our The next point uh, that Sojin makes is about Suzuki Roshi is nothing fancy. Suzuki Roshi didn't want us to lose, to get lost in or confused by complicated theories or dazzling or seductive explanations or excessive or ostentatious practices or distracting mystical beliefs. The practice that Suzuki Roshi gave us, and this was confirmed sometime when uh, there were some Japanese teachers who were visiting after Suzuki Roshi had set up uh, practice in San Francisco and Tassara, who really affirmed that Suzuki Roshi gave us the most simple and straightforward practice. And that was appropriate for people at that time. He didn't, he didn't teach a lot of ceremonies. Uh, he just did zazen and service, a very simple service every day. Uh, and when it came time to uh, set up real monastic forms at Tassahara, he actually brought in Tatsugami Roshi, who was also one of Sojin's teachers, brought him in from, uh, from Eiheiji in Japan uh, to set up the monastic forms because uh, there needed to be some forms. But what Suzuki Roshi gave us was nothing fancy. And um, I think you'll see when you practice in other places, even in our lineage, that the practice that we have here is nothing fancy. There's a respectfulness. It may feel very formal to you if you're, when you come in new, but there's a respectful simplicity and elegance to the forms that we have here that suit our circumstances, that suit both our lives and that also uh, it suits our the physical space that we have here. And I think that uh, 
soldiers really adhered to this nothing fancy uh, principle. Uh, he wanted us to be, he was very particular about how we did various, uh, how we did our forms, how we did our activities, how we sound the bell, how we bow, all of that. But he was giving us a very straightforward, simple, effective teaching. And so he was, he was really ewing to the, the line of his teacher. The next point is, do one thing thoroughly. Suzuki Roshi, like Dogen, stressed to do one thing and totally penetrate that one thing, to practice one dharma and penetrate one dharma. So just do that, that one thing to the end. Sojin writes, I once asked Suzuki Roshi, what is nirvana? He said, to see one thing through to the end. And actually that's what we used as the, the title for Sojin's upcoming book is uh, seeing one thing through. And he did that. He did that from the time he met Suzuki Roshi to his last days. He just did, it was just the continuity of practice. And to see one thing through, this is, you know, uh, and Suzuki Roshi did the same thing. Uh, this is really deeply inspiring to me. Sojin writes, instead of accumulating many things to put into our basket, we strike in the same place over and over to reveal our treasure store. Suzuki Roshi liked to say that we are protected from within. When we have this kind of confidence, we can let go of our crutches and external support. And without trying, our practice will give confidence to others. So seeing one thing through, uh, this is a really good way to live our life. And we see how challenging it is in, the, in, these, in these very strange but uh, common ways, you know, like we find ourselves sitting at our desk, we're doing something. And mysteriously, all of a sudden, we turn our attention and do something else. You've all had this experience, right? I hope for I think um, why why do we why do we turn our attention away when we're doing the dishes you know we we may wander off to to do something else in the kitchen it's like to do to take up a task and to complete it and then move to the next task to see one thing through and that's really great practice that's really useful. See if you can use that yourself in your life. Notice, just notice that moment when there's the, the urge to move away and change direction. It, it can be very subtle, 
and in that moment, recommit yourself to the activity that you're doing and continue. And when you're complete with that, then do something else. Nothing special. Suzuki didn't want us to think of zazen as some special practice for some special people. Our practice on the cushion should harmonize with the practice of our daily life. Zazen is not your practice. It is the basic activity of the universe in which everything is participating. It is Buddha's practice. Therefore, it is not something which we do just for ourselves. Since no two things can exist on the same spot at the same time, we each appear to be sitting in a solitary way. Now that's a, that's a complicated thought, actually. Since no two things can exist on the same spot at the same time, we each appear to be sitting in a solitary way. I think that means that as we sit here and our practice is to sit in basically the same posture, to sit side by side, and we're, we're doing the same thing, but we're doing this, uh, each of us, in our own individual fashion. And it's not special for us, it's not special for the person sitting next to us. In fact, to me I would say that nothing special points out that it's just the most natural thing in the world to sit down and take a moment to collect ourselves. And that is the nature of zazen. And when we learn this this practice, this skill, which we cultivate by sitting here in this lovely room, which is relatively quiet, which is pretty safe, we learn how to carry this forward into the world. And so our zazen is not just something we do when we sit facing the world, it's actually the mind of our entire activity and life as we let it really seep into our bones. And then it's nothing special. It's just, it's not, it's nowhere, it's, it's not at all any more special than, than taking one breath after another. That's nothing special. Uh, but it's, and at the same time, it's a special nothing. It's, we, how is it we're taking this breath? How is it that we take this a step? Or even that I open my mouth and words come out. Or that the thoughts arise and the words come out in sequence in my head. This is, this is nothing special and yet it's miraculous and mysterious. And I would say this is what, what really drew me to Zen 
long ago, actually, in, in high school, was reading Chinese and Japanese poetry. This is kind of in the in the days of the Beat generation, and the Beats were pointing. People like Gary Snyder and Kenneth, Kenneth Rex Roth and others were were pointing towards uh, models in poetry that they derived from these Chinese and Japanese poets, who were largely Zen poets. Uh, and when I read them in translation, I was really moved by the ordinariness of their perception and by a glimpse that within that ordinariness of nothing special, there was something remarkable. And with a kind of unformed yearning, that's what I wanted to, I wanted to touch that somehow in my life. It took me quite a few years to figure out how. So the last point is your difficulty is your treasure, which is good to remember. It's really good to remember as we're going into Sashin. Zazen has its difficulties as well as its pleasures, in the same way that our daily life has its difficulty and its pleasures. Sometimes our response to problems is to avoid or resist them. But if we approach our problem as a vehicle or an opportunity, we can welcome and use the problem in a beneficial way that can deepen our practice, rather than allowing ourselves to be overwhelmed and victimized by it. Sometimes Suzuki Roshi would say that you should appreciate the problem you have now. If you get rid of it, another one will take its place, and you may wish you had the previous one. I was thinking of another story that Sojin tells in one of his lectures. Uh, said one time, he thinks it was about the fourth day of Sashin in San Francisco, when there was enough pain and discomfort to go around, Suzuki Roshi began his talk slowly by saying, the problems you are experiencing now will go away, we were sure he was saying. Suzuki Roshi continued. We'll continue for the rest of your life. <laughs> he concluded. The way he said it, everyone laughed. But it's true. What, will ch what can change is how we meet those problems. There's problems that we have that we can laugh at. There's problems we have that we really have to, we have to dig in and meet. There's problems we have that we really need help with. And here we have a Sangha that can, uh, Dharma friends, and all kinds of friends who can help us. Uh, so that problem or that difficulty is your treasure. That problem is, it's always good to face these problems as, 
as much as we want to get rid of them, to ask, what is the teaching here? What can I learn here that's useful, even though I really don't like this? It's okay not to like it. But it's important to recognize that there's a teaching there as well. So, um, that's the end of this piece by Sojin. And uh, I'll stop here. You may have some comments or questions, or thoughts, both here in the room. And if you're on Zoom, please raise your digital hand. Um, and Joe, are you going to carry around the microphone? We now have this snazzy two microphone system working. So if you have something you would like to ask, uh, please raise your hand or say. There's a hand back there. And what's your name? Salvador. Hi. Hello. Learning. Thank you for your talk. Um, I was just wondering in that writing by Suzuki Roshi, um, does he address emptiness in any of those talks? Um, well, this was a this was actually a talk by Sojin. Mm. Um, yes, Suzuki Roshi talks about emptiness, and um, I think you missed my class on Thursday. Uh, but my class on Thursday was essentially is about emptiness. It was from a chapter, there's a chapter in uh, Zen Mind Beginner's Mind called Believing in, no Believing in Nothing, or Believe in Nothing. Uh, and that's about emptiness. Uh, but what's your question? Well, I'm, it's interesting that you said nothing because I've been kind of sitting with is there a difference between nothingness and emptiness? Are they the same? Well, does it matter? You know, it all depends on what the words mean to you, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, what I said on Thursday was my my gloss on this is believe in no thing, and so when we talk about emptiness. If we go back to the Heart Sutra, uh, in the first lines of the Heart Sutra, it talks about the five skandhas, the aggregates, the aggregates that we, uh, we, in Buddhist understanding, see as kind of what we construct a self out of. Um, in their own being are empty. All dharmas in their own being, which means there is no, there is no thing that you can point to that is, has its own identity. You don't. That microphone doesn't. Uh, this computer is made of chips and cards and wires and, and screens. You know, there's no one part of that that I can point to and say, that is the essence of computer. So it's empty of a fixed identity. It's the coming together of causes and conditions. That's how, that's how I see emptiness. Not as 
nothingness and emptiness have a certain, I think they have a certain implication in, in English that uh, is kind of negative. Uh, but it's, that's, I think, not the meaning in Buddhist terms. Thank you. Thank you. While you're waiting here, I see Judy, but let me ask Ron. Ron, can you unmute? Yes. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Oza. Um, let me put my hand down here. Um, I'm always frustrated when we talk about emptiness without saying of own being. Right. That we, there's, you know, what's emptiness? Well, we're talking about a very specific kind of emptiness. It's an emptiness of own being. It's not that there's no phenomena or nothing's here or not, not a void, but it's emptiness of an own being, something which is, stands independently and is not dependent on anything else. Um, and, you know, I always frustrated when we just talk about emptiness and leave it at that because it's emptiness of an own being, which right. is really important to me. Right. Well, thank you. Yeah, I agree. And we talked about this on uh, the other night, too. Yes. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Uh, thank you. It's easy to misunderstand that because of just the, the implication of of that word in our language. Um, Judy. Thank you, Hosan. Um, where I notice this coming up a lot is uh, when something's going on in posture and there could be pain or discomfort or just something. And uh, this question of whether to move or whether to stay with. And we have this form, right, of bowing if we're going to adjust our posture. And I'm wondering if what your understanding of that is in terms of um, re receptivity and responsiveness, because you were talking about expression. You're talking about of the bowing? Yes, what's the purpose yeah. of that? Well, I think that the purpose is twofold. Uh, one is you're bowing to yourself. You could say, you know, if you, whatever rigidity you might have or judgment you might have about yourself for moving, uh, that you're respecting yourself, but also it's communicating to the person who's next to you. You know, it's, it's recognizing I'm moving, which may surprise you. It may interrupt the flow of your, of your mind and, uh, I'm being respectful of it. That was, that's basically how I, how I learned it. But I think that it's both, it's both dimensions of that. Uh, one of the pieces in, in Sojin's book, he talks about early periods of Sasana. He talks about like the first few years of his practice were really, really painful. And I think that some of us have had that experience. Uh, and he, you know, it's like this double message that's 
that's put out, and some places it's emphasized in different ways, you know. Some places, if you move, they will yell at you. I've been there, and I never go back to a place like that, you know. Uh, I, I've seen that it's just like, where does that come from? That's like, you don't find that in the Pali Sutras, you know. Uh, and, and yet, you know, Sojin talks about Suzuki Roshi saying, don't chicken out, you know. Uh, and he, uh, he talks about an early experience in Sushin where uh, it got to the whole Sushin. It was excruciatingly painful. And it was the last period of Sazen. And five minutes before the end, he moved his legs. And he felt, you know, it's like, oh, you know, there's some judgment involved there. And I don't think the judgment is necessary, but meeting the judgment is necessary. If you have a judgment, that's really good to experience and to say, you know, to ask yourself, and we, all of us who have had long, painful sessions, we've all had to reckon with those moments of when to move, when not to move, can I do this, you know, how do I, it's also, it's always like, how? You know, I want to hang on, my, my intention is to hang on until the bell, how do I do this? And that's an existential question. Yeah, gonna, Karen has a response, so wait, wait for the microphone, then I'll see you again. I just had another uh, addition to the understanding of why we bow before we move during Zazen, and that is that I was taught that if you move, it's a continuation of Zazen. It's not like, uh, oh, I have to move, let me stop Zazen, and then I'm gonna readjust myself and settle into a new posture, that the movement is actually part of the yes. practice. Yeah. I think that's right, yeah. Um, Ajayan. Thank you, Hosan. Uh, it is uh, heavily raining outside. I think uh, I'm already... Can you hear me? Was that, I can hear you, you're a little broken up. Was that a question? Yeah. Yeah, you told that uh, understanding. Yeah, my question is, you told that understanding Nirvana, we must see things through one thing. Is that one thing is a, a certain point where things are originated or the non-duality. Non the things we see now is that expanded form of the one thing or the, the point. So actually, what is the one thing or the point when we understand the Nirvana? I'm not quite sure I understand your question. Um, but I don't think Suzuki Roshi was being, he wasn't talking about any one particular thing. He was talking about whatever it is you're doing, see it through. 
see it through to the end. And nirvana uh, resides within every activity uh, if we, you know, if we do it completely. If we use our, we use ourselves up in that in that moment, and then uh, we're reborn in the next moment, and we have the energy to uh, to do something else. Does that make sense? Thank you. Thank you. I got it. Thank I you. Got it. Well, maybe there's time for one more. Anyone else in here? Yeah, I'll go ahead. Related to the earlier point about when to move legs in Zazen, I was wondering, there seems to be a conflict between no gaining idea and seeing one thing through. At least for me, sometimes the idea of not moving my legs until the the bell rings, that becomes a gaining idea. Right. That, that's the question of how right. to resolve that. Thank so, welcome to the world. <laughs> you know, and uh, welcome to, I think that at the heart of our practice, uh, a point I would add as essential is like that we. What I love about Zen is that we're learning to live with ambiguity. We're learning to live with things not necessarily meaning one thing and not necessarily meaning two things. You know, um, and this is a distinction uh, for me between uh, the early Buddhist tradition and um, the later Mahayana and Zen tradition. You know, in the early Buddhist tradition, uh, there's not really much ambiguity. It's things are positive or negative. Uh, things are wholesome, unwholesome, pure, impure. Uh, what we what we come to in the Zen tradition is. that things are complex and constructed of a variety of elements and that in every, in every good thing there's a shadow side. You know, in every shadow there's a treasure. And so we really, you know, we exactly meet that when we're looking at the pain in our legs in Sishin. And there's no right or wrong answer. Uh, the actually, the, the teaching resides in the very contemplation and effort that you have to make to engage with your situation. And if you don't move, great. You don't get a badge. 
and if you move, okay, you don't get a mark, you can don't get a point marked off. Uh, it's how do we learn from this? For some reason, as I'm saying, it's just it's very emotional to me, and I don't even know where the source of that emotion is, but. I think that's at the heart of the teaching that we, we've received for all these years. And I hope that we will keep on learning this together.